Hello, and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And we are covering the Come Follow Me manual um, for the week of October 21st through the 27th, titled Be Not Soon Shaken in Mind or Be Troubled. Michelle generally is reading from the King James Version of the Bible. I generally read from the Wayment New Testament translation that's translated from the original Greek. This week we are covering books um, First and Second Thessalonians. And there's some interesting context for our reading today. First of all, generally scholars feel that this is the earliest writing of the New Testament. So even written before the Gospels, that this is one of the first uh, actual writings we have of the beginning of Christianity in the primitive church. And so this is a letter from Paul to the Thessalonians. Thessalonia are, is in Macedonia, which is in Greece. And this is a very free society. Although there's still Roman rule there, Greeks are able to worship as they want. And it's a great place for Christianity to be opened up and accepted on some level. With that said, because of how culturally bound a lot of beliefs were at this time, there can be a big contrast to Christianity. And we see that as kind of a theme that they're working against in some ways as we read the, the, the letters to the Thessalonians. Right at the very beginning, we have Paul addressing the Thessalonians and talking about how much joy they have in their righteousness and the love they feel for them in their prayers. They specifically talk about how the gospel came to them by the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And as I've thought about our reading for this week, I thought about how a lot of this parallels with the same eternal principles that parallel in each dispensation. And when I thought about this specifically, I was thinking about the beginnings of the church in our dispensation with Joseph Smith and some of the challenges they faced. So I kind of saw in that context, and I thought it was interesting to be um, someone that's called by God to be part of the elect. Joseph Smith specifically says that the elect are those that hear God's voice and harden not their hearts. And we've talked a lot about grace and works, and it's an interesting concept to think about how the Spirit is where they got their power at this time, that that brought the conviction of the truthfulness of what they're hearing. But because of God's plan, we still have agency. So when you are called, when you're part of the chosen, the elect to know of God's love and to be part of his work, there is God who comes in and, and bears his grace and gives his grace to you as you strive to be obedient, as you make that choice to be obedient. And those are the type of people that Paul's working with at the beginning of this reading. And I really love, um, first of all, some of those thoughts I didn't know about this being the earliest writing. So I think way to go, Laura, for thank bringing you. that to the forefront. Thank like you, thank you. That actually makes this like even more intriguing to me. One of the things that I want to like pull out specifically where we're talking about these people who, you know, Paul's speaking to people who have chosen the Savior and they have chosen God. Um, in verse four of chapter one, so right at the beginning, and I'm not sure how your um, translation phrases this, but I it just really was something that I was attracted to. It said, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. 
And I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, we're like zero politicalness going to happen as a result of this. But if you make an election, you're making a choice or a selection. And that really he's talking to people who have elected or chosen God. That's the path that they've chosen. That's what they want. And it's interesting to think that that specific thing is what can set you apart. It's, it's, we go back to that concept of foreordination and predestination. And if you choose to follow God, he wants you to have power with his spirit coming to you, which is what he's addressed them as. But I was thinking about these things as I specifically thought about verse 10, 9 and 10, because we hear words that we have heard with, um, the church as Joseph Smith was establishing it. So in verse nine, and and again, I'll be interested in your translation, that these people are reported to have turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, the one who delivers us from the coming wrath. And so that was interesting to me for several reasons. One, I, I recall in, in early church history, we hear about how a lot of what was Joseph Smith's struggle, struggle and early saints that were searching for the truth was they know that there was a true and living God. And yet at that time, people were saying, the heavens are closed, no more revelation. And it's interesting to just see examples throughout different dispensations of how the heavens aren't closed. There is revelation. There's personal revelation. There's a revelation from our prophet, and his servants can come and teach us. And that's a huge thing at the very beginning of church history that Joseph Smith over and over was told, there is not this living God that has this relationship. And if you think about that in the context of Greek culture, as they're worshiping Athena, and as they're bringing idols that maybe these idols represent a power that they recognize in life, a power that they feel with war and a power that they feel with the heavens and rain and thunder. It wasn't an interactive experience for them. It wasn't that they went to the temples and they received the spirit and they felt that spirit. And so it's just really, it was interesting to me as I read that specific scripture, just to think the parallels throughout each dispensation of time, that these are eternal truths and that people have found God in those experiences, even in a completely different culture. Absolutely. Like it transcends, like in each of these dispensations and even within the dispensations in different cultures, we have it manifesting in different ways. And yet in the same way that we have access to a living God and revelation and miracles and other manifestations of the spirit now, as did people in earlier dispensations, we also have like one of the things that stood out to me in verse nine was talking about idols, how um, they turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And it reminded me in an earlier podcast when we were talking about the higher law and the lower law and how Moses came down from the Mount and here they all were worshiping the golden calf. And I know this isn't like a fresh concept, but I still think that it is important to note and to like be aware of being on the lookout for what are those idols in our day? Cause I don't think they're very often like a literal golden statue figurine that people are worshiping, but nonetheless adapted to our culture 
it is present. Absolutely. And when you think of idols, you think that they see not, they hear not, they know not. When you look at these ancient religions, that's kind of how they're framed. But really, it's anything, anytime you trust in the flesh more than God. So in our day and time, though, it's very easy to see how Satan is using our modern techniques. I guess going back to early church history, there were people that said, you know, we don't need those things anymore. They needed that back in the Bible day because they didn't understand. But see, we have technology. We have these mills that can make things easier for us. God has provided for us. We don't need to like turn to him and ask, seek. Whereas today it's like, I don't, I mean, everybody kind of is turning away from needing God. Why do you need God? I have a smartphone and I, I personally feel like my smartphone, my IQ has increased at least 20 points. Every, I'm just like, oh, I just asked Siri. I just turned to my smartphone. I don't need a lot of assistance anymore. I have Amazon free shipping tomorrow. I, or at the very least two day. Well, two day shipping. Yeah. Yeah. So it's coming. So yes, trusting in the flesh over trusting in God is something that not just the people in the New Testament or Joseph Smith's day struggled with. We get it full. Okay. Full blown. And I feel like nerdy excitement because I feel like we may have just found one of the really cool threads that's going to run through what we're talking about, which is that all of these concepts transcend all the all the dispensations. dispensations. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I kind of felt that too. The interesting thing here, so we're, we're still in the beginning. So if we want to kind of pull that thread through, he gives us a great example. And I thought, how do you teach people at the very, very beginning of the primitive church? You don't have general conference and you don't have these wonderful resources that you and I are using right now. And so he really emphasizes looking to his example. And Paul Paul, you know, before reading the New Testament, I always saw Paul, I I studied a lot of art history in my lifetime, and Paul is always put up there with Peter, so I knew he was a big deal, because I knew Peter was the prophet that followed Christ, but I have really enjoyed seeing the work that Paul has has done, as we've read, Come Follow Me, and I, I also knew that Joseph Smith had this incredible affinity for Paul, and so I've just been so impressed with Paul as we've read this, because how much pressure is that for you to be the example after Christ? We don't have scripture, we don't have anything, so just look at me and do what I do, and then you'll know how to do Christianity. <laughs> and and in some ways, is it not like you either have to be like a complete narcissist and think that you are like amazing or so pure in heart because there's not really an in-between that anyone would feel comfortable making those (laughs) assertions well and Paul spent plenty of time like I will tell you how much I suffered if you really have to know but I mean obviously Paul suffered and so he apparently he's paid his dues to be here but he gives us an example of not only what a good teacher would look like or a kind leader would look like, but what each of us can do in our own lives to reciprocate love and and being a good example and supporting the church. Because as you look at this, that is one of the big things that in, ended up being the great struggle at the begin, beginning. And as you can imagine, without these standardized ways to do things, there was a lot of disharmony about how to go about doing things. So he kept saying, And I just kind of underlined everything, and I just 
got a ton of, of, of great examples of things you can do. You can pray for each other. You do all the things to make sure that you are pleasing to God and you work and you're humble and you love. And so as you go through the reading, you can find ways that Paul gives us this example. Okay, so I just want to throw in a couple of the ones that stood out to me because I think as always, different things stood out to each one of us, which is part of what makes it interesting. If we both had the same things, then that'd yes. be a little less and interesting. And I can already, I'm already looking. You're so, so more colorful than mine. So I loved in verse two that he tells them that he and um, Silvus and Timothy, they were bold in bold. God. I, lo- I underlined bold. I thought that and was I, wonderful. And I, I just really enjoyed that. And then in verse four, um, that they were allowed to put in trust with the gospel. And I don't. I probably needed to have the whole sentence for that to make sense. But basically... Well, because it goes on to say not to please people, but right. to please God. Right. Yeah. And so they're really trusting that even if this is going against what the culture is saying, that it's all going to work together and it's going to make sense and it's going to come together because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, of course, it's going to come together to tr- like trust that process. Well, and like as you were saying, again, if you can have the perspective of how do you go about doing this... Well, you're not worried about what other people think. You you worry about what God thinks. And that's a really powerful concept, I think. So, but he goes on to say all this to tell us that we have how to have an upright life, how to prepare for the second coming, which is a big theme here too. Is that everybody's on board and they recognize that Christ has power and they're doing these things to prepare for the second coming. And if we apply those to every dispensation, we know that um, in our dispensation, Christ will come. But in everybody's life, they get 70, 80, 90 as our lifespan expanded, expands years until we're guaranteed the coming of Christ. So I don't know if it's our generation or the next generation or the next generation. But we all can be vigilant about the coming of Christ. And so people take the concepts of Christianity and they prepare and then they're frustrated because they're like, well, he hasn't come yet. So he's talked about why we have an, why, why we want to have an upright life. And he also talks to us about how. And so before he talks about the returning of the Lord, he talks to us about how to have an upright life. Um, he, and, and again, right when I just looked down, I underlined live to please God in the very first verse of chapter four. And it says specifically right after that, which is interesting because we get lists of good things to do, but he specifically says in verse 3 that the will of God is for us to be made holy, right? That is what God's doing. He's trying to bring us to have immortality and eternal life with him. And his immediate admonition is to stay away from sexual misbehavior, that each of you understands how to possess your own body in holiness and honor, not in lust and desire, like the Gentiles, who would be the pagans that are worshiping pagan gods, who do not know God, that no one exploit or take advantage of a brother or sister. And I thought that was interesting that as we get the, the list of how to have that upper life to prepare for Christ, that he started with sexual misbehavior. I don't know if that was something that you thought was interesting. Well, I thought just this whole concept of learning how... So in the King James Version in verse 4, it says, Every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And I thought that that was 
really like the key because it's all about self-mastery and learning how to, so our vessel being in my mind, our bodies, which it sounds like that's what the Greek was just straight up saying. Right. So that every one of us should know how to possess our own bodies. How are we going to be in possession of our body and not have our body rule us, but have us be ruling our body? And I also found it interesting as you were talking to think about how <laughs> these instructions were given and he's talking about the second coming when clearly these people were not going to be on the earth in mortality during the second coming. And yet in in each dispensation, including our own, we're preparing for the second coming and maybe it doesn't super matter if it's going to happen that we'll see it in mortality or in the spirit in the next life because time is all the same to the Lord. And we're all preparing for that moment, whether we complete all of our preparation on this side of the veil or the other, I think holds less relevance than we here in mortality can see because that path is the same for all of us wherever that may be. That is interesting because then it's in the next book where he has to clarify, oh, by the way... There's an actual apostasy that happens before this happens, but that isn't actually in this part. It's just like prepare for the second coming. Correct. But as he says to exp- to prepare for the second coming, this is it's about self mastery. That's what he's doing. But I, to me, it's interesting that he specifically talks about sexual misbehavior because I feel like self mastery. So much of self mastery is the point he makes in verse six that no one exploit or take advantage of a brother or sister. We talk about our body is the temple, but I started thinking about how the temple is our body. And as I did that, I thought about how I take things into my body. And as I do that, I become more like the temple. But it's because of sensitivity to other people that that motivation comes. If I feel like I'm entitled to do whatever I want with my body, it may feel good to me. It may be just how I'm feeling in the moment. There's a consequence. It affects other people. Um, And so the idea of exploiting or taking advantage of a brother or sister, and and it's a very simple example when you talk about sexual misbehavior. We all have the law of chastity, and we all know that that is where God has recognized marriage between a man and woman. But even within marriage, it's very easy to break the idea of exploiting or taking advantage of somebody else. And um, there's a couple of talks that came to my mind right away. Um, Wendy Nelson has written one about called something about four truths about love and marriage that just breaks it down very simply that even when you're married, there are basic there's basic respect that we bring to that marriage and seeing each other in an eternal perspective and bringing the spirit into your marriage makes a huge difference and then on a more sophisticated level one of the the very um, popular talks that that is usually associated with sexual purity is elder hollands where he talks about soul symbols and sacraments and he does not um, touch lightly on how You know, just being married makes it enough. Being um, part of a union and and respecting each other physically is part of the law of chastity if you're going to the higher law, right? So we have that lower law of simply being married 
And then we have a higher law of actually really fundamentally respecting each other in marriage. And so that, so, so that, that one sentence just really um, stood out to me that exploiting or taking advantage of somebody else's body can really help us with the self-mastery and, and help us get to a point where we recognize that our life is about coming to God and loving one another in the smallest of ways. Because then he goes on to say... Well, okay, before you venture too far off of there, I just wanted to say that I really do think that I appreciate that distinction of being able to think of, you know, so many of these concepts have a higher and a lower principle to them. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about that sexual relationship, I was thinking about how, um, because it's not just about like, okay, I'm following the rules, lower law, but I'm also um, recognizing the other person in this equation and how this affects them and how does this enable them to feel loved and respected and allow them, therefore, to not have anything inhibiting their view of God and this divine marriage and like all of those pieces that go into it. And I feel like when we look at, cause this is going to come up again later when we talk about, you know, some of the consequences for people who aren't living according to God's law, that one of the things that is at play here is that it's not only ourselves that we're concerned with in the higher law. It's how our behavior affects other people's ability to connect to God and I just think that's really interesting. And the other way that I think that this self-mastery is interesting is that I came across this concept kind of recently about time and how in some ways sin or maybe a lack of self-mastery is another way of saying that we're misusing this time that we've been given on earth. And thinking about it in that way I think is like fascinating because... It's like our, it's like this commodity that we have every day and how are we going to use our time and a misuse of time is a form of not having self-mastery. Well, and I, I like thinking about it that way because self-mastery is a skill that we learn. We have to also learn to take care of ourselves. So downtime is an actual thing in the concept of time, but when downtime becomes more of an indulging thing, then then there's that thought of, are we misusing time? And so there's this real balance you have to strike, which all comes back to the genuineness of, are we living to please God? Because if we can use these, these thoughts to keep our behavior focused, we can recognize and discern when we're using our time to please God, when we're using our time to please God and also take care of ourselves. Heavenly Father wants us to take care of ourselves. Right. But when that goes overboard and we're exploiting someone else or we're exploiting our time, exploiting things, that's a, a different thing. And, and so I was going to say, and I think it's important, like I just realized that I may have painted myself in a corner a little bit in saying that because I don't in any way want us to go back to that concept of like every minute of time has to be productive. And I think what that looks like to the Lord and what we think it looks like may be very different things because I don't want to get back into this concept of 
stress checklist. We got to get all these things done. All of my time has to be used well in order for this to count because that's not what that was about. I think part of what we're also feeling is there is some truth to that too. We do want to use our time wisely, but we recognize that our time is also full of menial tasks too. So aside from the fact that we need to just have downtime, we also, so let's take ourselves as mothers because I was thinking about this um, just a couple of thoughts ago is that Thinking about not exploiting others helps you with self-mastery. And I was thinking about how when I was, my husband was in medical school and we had young children. And that's a hard period in our life because physically it was hard. When you have young children and you um, don't really have a support system, because sometimes when you're in medical school, you don't get to choose the family or the people that you associate with. You may not have that huge support system to start with and thank goodness for visiting teachers at the time, right? And so I was thinking about that time period as we were talking. And my life was full (laughs) of changing diapers and making food and things that maybe sometimes I go, well, goodness, there are people suffering in the world and, and I'm just here like cleaning a bathtub and I could be doing better things with my time. And then I had to recognize that's not what Heavenly Father wants. Heavenly Father wants me to take care of myself and take care of my family at this time. But, so I, I'm making a point. I'm just getting there in a okay, roundabout good. way. Okay, I, I like promise. That. Okay, so he goes down here and he says, the thing that follows, specifically the point we're making, is he says, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. And when he says to do this more and more, he's talking about having that concept of self-mastery and having an upright life and to expand on that. And he says to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands, just as we commanded you so that you will live an upright life. And so when you can think of this good use of time on that level, okay, so there was a point where I came to making the food for my kids and doing the things that were unpleasant. And I recognized that's what the Lord wanted me to do there that, that, at that time. That was the most important thing I could be doing. And yet I was sitting there, I can't remember what I was making, but I was cooking dinner when this big concept came to me. I'm cooking dinner and somebody's like, mom, I need you to sign something while another child's telling me to do something else. And I felt that I'm overwhelmed. This is frustrating. Um, All these menial tasks seem to keep me away from Heavenly Father. Let me just ponder on your deep thoughts and what you want me to do. But I can't right now because I'm making eggs. And then I was like, yes, that's what you need to be doing right now. You need to be serving in the way you're serving right now. And, And I have southern roots. And so this popped into my mind very easily. And I was like... I think I might have been making eggs for dinner because, you know, it was one of those days. And I was like, I'm making eggs for Jesus. I'm going to keep making these eggs for Jesus. And I just kept saying it over and over again. And then, you know what? The peace that passeth all understanding came into my mind, right? That this, yes, this is where you're supposed to be right now. You're supposed to be doing your own business and working with your own, own hands just as we commanded you and not being frustrated because it's not a greater work at this time and not be f- being frustrated because you think your time should be using more, be used more wisely, but to go, these children were sent to me and I'm doing a great work with them. 
instead of me getting all frustrated and about to be exploitive and take advantage of the fact that they were harassing me when I could be doing greater work, I was able to center myself and have that, I guess it was a sense of self-mastery too, because I was able to think about how making eggs for Jesus is a beautiful part of his work, especially when you're nourishing other people in the household. And so we just went through like 10 verses in a very around the elbow way, but all this whole concept of being aware of how you affect other people I think that gives you that greater sense of self-mastery, thinking that the time that you have right now, whatever you're doing, if you are like cleaning puke off the floor, but you can keep that perspective of love and serving one another, then you can feel that peace and you can feel that self-mastery. And, and perspective is always a very helpful thing. And I love the beautiful simplicity of that. In fact, a phrase that I often think of when I think of how the more I come to understand the way that the Lord works with us or how his power can work in our life, it's an elegant simplicity. And I like, love that. And I love how your verse said, and I don't even, Oh, mine. Oh yeah. What is your verse said? So I read 11. Mine says quiet too, but I, I actually really like, I mean, it's very similar, but those words quiet and to, to work with our own hands and to like be about the business that we've been set into. And I think, knowing that that's enough. That is enough. That is what the Lord needs us to be doing. And there's, there's no need to feel guilt or a sense of, I can't even get this finished. How am I supposed to do all these other things that in my head I picture as being what the Lord has sent me here to do, to realize right before me is what the Lord has sent me to do. And that is enough. And I have to trust that God sees the divinity in it. And even if I don't see the divinity in it, I love and trust God and I trust that he wouldn't having he wouldn't send me here to waste my time. That this is a divine important thing that I'm doing and I love that concept of it's okay to have a quiet life. Well, and 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 he said live quietly and when you said attend to it specifically says attend to your own business. That is a very um, quiet, personal thing to do. And and it's right in the midst of all this. And I just, yeah, and, as you've talked, and I like, thought that's really nice. As you do that, maybe that makes so many other things easier. Like it's easier to not be in other people's business and to be judgmental mm -hmm. and to or be worried about lot tons of other things. And that exactly, there are a lot of lessons to be learned sitting right here in front of what we're doing. So... We need to make a bigger dent in our lesson. Let's see. Let's move on to the second coming and okay. the day of the Lord and what they're talking about. He um, does this. I love when they talk about the day of the Lord. So we're doing all this. We're living this upright life so that we can be prepared for the second coming. So that's why, why we are discussing this is that he talks about being prepared for the second coming. And... I love when the second coming is compared to a couple things, but I really like when it's a woman in travail. Okay. Because if anybody's had a child, we all get the concept that those last few weeks of pregnancy before the baby comes, we can identify with that as far as the Lord coming. So, I don't know. Did you, do you get that? And, do you recognize that? And, like, how tired do you get of people saying, oh, you're still pregnant? Like, yeah, obviously. Obviously, I'm still when's pregnant. When's the due date? Exactly. It's always when's the due date. So, when we think about this, the coming of the, second, of, of the Lord, 
Um, and if you have actually had a child before, you recognize that, oh yes, it's wonderful when you know the due date and when the, the doctor can tell you how effaced you are or how dilated you are. So these are all signs of the coming of the child. And so those are all great. But when it's your first child, you're like, oh yeah, I'm effaced. This is, this, it's happening now, right? And then, you know, you realize that is painful to just like sit and wait because there was one sign. So when we, when we talk about the second coming, he specifically here talks about the difference between waiting painfully or waiting completely obliviously to the Christ coming and how that doesn't feel good. But those of you that are waiting for the Lord and, and being prepared and living as if the Lord were already here and part of your life, which is an option, that's going to be a completely different experience. And also I love, because we're going to combine this with an earlier podcast that we did for for like a couple minutes, because in verse 11 <clears throat> talks about, oh no, sorry, wrong, wrong orange underline on my part. Verse 8, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope mm, of salvation. Yes. And I love that concept because it reminds me of when we talked about putting on the whole armor of God. And I loved your thoughts when we talked about that, that, you know, wearing all this armor and being prepared is really uncomfortable if you're just sitting around. And so is waiting for a baby to be born. Oh, yes. But if we can be actively participating in the battle, being prepared, being alert and awake and doing what God has given us to do, somehow the weight of the armor and perhaps even the waiting of the time all, mm, it's just not as cumbersome. Well, before we go on from that, I want to actually read this section because the message did a good job of this section. Would you Aww. like to hear what the message is? Sure, has I'd to love say? to. Okay, so... And then we'll come back to the to the end of this statement. But um, so we're talking about how some people are just sleeping through the night. They're not aware of what's going to happen. But those of us that are looking to the light are going to be prepared. And he says, friends, you're not in the dark. You are not in the dark. So how could you be taken off guard by any of this? Your sons of light, your daughters of day, we will under wide open skies and know where we stand so let's not sleepwalk through life like those others. Let's keep our eyes open and be smart. People sleep at night and people get drunk at night, but not us. Since we're creatures of day, let's act like it. Walk out into the daylight sober, dressed up in faith, love, and the hope of salvation. God didn't set us up for being confused. He set us up to be prepared. And so I, I you know would have moved on, but I was like, wait, but the message has a really pretty nice way of saying it, right? And I so and so as you talk about putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation, again, my thoughts turn to President Nelson and how he's just been very much preparing us. I feel like he's been preparing us and telling us we're part of this battalion. We can do better and be better, which I think is the the title of his talk where he at priesthood in the spring said that there are things that we can be do, and he preached repentance over and over to be better, um, to prepare, to be ready in all circumstances. And and it's specifically that talk came into my mind at the end of this chapter in verse 23 when he said, May the God of peace make you completely holy 
And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. And I love, I think one of the things, like, there was a series which my daughter was kind of excited for how short some of these verses are when we were reading through. Um, But verse 19, quench not the spirit. Mm -hmm. So short, so concise, and yet could we not ponder forever some of that concept? And I think maybe one of the key ways that we can, in our own homes, within our own selves, really be looking to make sure that nothing is standing in the way between us and the Spirit, because the Spirit's going to direct everything that we individually need to do to be prepared and to prepare those that have been placed in our stewardship. And how do we do this? He talks specifically in these final verses about many of the ways we can do this. But again, I think the reason why to me, it stood out at that that last bit was um, how you become completely holy. The word holy and whole, as in a circle, um, are two separate words, but they have now just converged in my mind. Holy is, is a word that describes deity and sanctification, but holy means to be complete and perfect. And to me, they are starting to sound one and the same. To be holy means to be complete and perfect perfected, right? And so I was thinking about this when President Nelson in that uh, do better, be better kind of talk, he said that repentance means that there's a change in mind, there's a change in knowledge, there's a change in spirit, and there's a change in breath. And I remember if you want to talk about self-mastery and making your body a temple and preparing yourself for the second coming, that concept of our spirits and bodies becoming our soul and that soul becoming whole and complete, we have got to look at unifying our mind and our knowledge and our spirit and our breath through these ways that that have been set out in the, the end of this Um, chapter to become holy. Holy means to be set apart for a sacred purpose. And the way we do that is through sanctification, sanctification of our bodies, our spirits, our soul. And we are just getting more and more um, leadership telling us how to do that. And so as we read these things, it it gets us to that point. And that brings us into our our next um, book, which continues talking about these things because shortly after he writes this this letter he recognizes that it didn't take long for things to start kind of falling apart because Paul gives them this direction but then everybody starts disagreeing about what that direction looks like which we know is going to happen because we know there has to be an apostasy so we're looking at how this unfolds and they're hearing everything Paul says but then there's persecution And then the second coming hasn't happened. And then some people are being really contentious. And so they're really struggling to figure out how to actually implement all these things. Mm. And so that brings us to the second um, book of Thessalonians, where you can see Satan is really working to uh, divide the church. And, And there's an emphasis placed on that and the apostasy in these readings. And I think Satan really, like I think using those two words together in the same sentence really brought a lot of clarity to me that Satan works to divide anything. Yes. Well, we just talked about being whole. Us, us within ourselves, 
us with other people, us with God. I mean, any place that he can make a division or create confusion, I feel like if we're feeling a divide or we're feeling confusion about something, to me, there is something about that that Satan is working to try to bring that about. Not that we are being, you know, controlled by Satan, but that that is his work. His work is literally the opposite of the Lord's. And if the Lord's work is to bring us to wholeness within ourselves and with our spouses and our families and with God himself, then of course Satan's work is going to be to divide all those things. So how applicable, and that's what I kept thinking, is this chapter to our lives right now? Yes, we are going to talk about the primitive church, but this is all so applicable to our day and time. Even though the emphasis in this book is about the apostasy, which we know Joseph Smith brought back the priesthood from the apostasy. But in our own day and time, if, if, if Satan is about division, then how much power is there in unity? And if we unify ourselves, like President Nelson has suggested, to be unified in spirit, body, soul, through our breath, through the repentance, and being unified as a person, and being unified in our marriage, which we just described in, uh, talking about the law of chastity, and being unified as families, and to be unified as the body of Christ, which this Come Follow Me program is helping us do more and more, our curriculum's becoming more unified, we are becoming a unified church. Confusion of any type has been really taken out of a lot of our curriculum very um, purposely. President, I don't know who, you know, if, if it's all just coming together at this time, or if somebody has the vision to say, this is when we need to do it. Well, of course, it's the true church, and it's led by... I mean, there's a there's I a just, chance the prophet, seer, and revelator of the I'm church could to, see how it's going to come together. I'm trying to put together. it in worldly words, and I'm just like, yes, because Christ is ahead. But, I mean, when you talk about how just changes in the temple, and it's just to take out confusion. It's not because it's changing. It's that all of these tools that Satan may use to divide our church are quickly being swept away. And if you are somebody that has a... This chapter really addresses why some of the people may have a may have challenges with those experiences. But the power of being unified, the power of unity, is something that I know that Satan just fears because it is powerful. And so very the most interesting part of this beginning of this book to me was talking about the apostasy apostasy. And he says it comes. It Which will, chapter are you in? So I'm in um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it starts really um, talking in verse 3 about the day will not come until the apostasy, apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, who is the son of perdition, is revealed. And I'm imagining your translation may say something different. Sure, but I think we've got a lot of these same things going on, because some of the things that I underlined in my version, just in these first few verses... Um, I mean, I just wrote in my margin that this is like telling us how to stay safe and how to watch out for what could pull us apart, um, and on, on any level, but, um, that we should be soon, be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, which I think is where the, uh, overall title of this section comes from. And then in verse three, I underlined, let no man deceive you which I think partners very nicely with some of the things that we were just reading before um, in our earlier chapters that said um, specifically to stand fast in the Lord. Um, and I think that that just goes so well with let, let, let no man deceive you. Well, and, 
And Satan specifically, I, I've never heard him described as the man of lawlessness. Maybe I have, but that kind of stood out to me that, well, Satan is the man of lawlessness, whereas God is the man of eternal, or God is God of eternal laws and principles. And I feel like for some people nowadays, there's such the sense of individuality, right? When we talk about divisiveness, I mean, we literally spend half our days on devices. <laughs> Satan is like well enmeshed in our in our culture completely. And Laura's holding her phone as she's saying devices. Yes, I do this often. Device. I'm a visual person, so I'm always showing Michelle stuff that I know nobody else can can catch. But when when our society is surrounded by divisiveness all around us, you know, there's this sense of individuality, and laws should work for me. I should live laws because it works for me. <laughs> and so this Satan being a man of lawlessness, when, when President Nelson changes something or, or God declares what marriage is, I don't know that your laws work for me. Is something that's very typical of how our society works nowadays, is that I like things and when they work for me, I do it. And so it's hard to recognize that that the mysteries of lawlessness are, are a tool of Satan. And as, and as part of this, like, like I have to feel like part of it is just that we are limited in what we can see. We're limited in our ability to see how this principle or this whatever seems to not work for me because I have this veil of forgetfulness drawn. I don't have the ability to see as God sees from this eternal perspective, how all of these things will work together. And in that case, it does remind me that we are still very much like toddlers in that, you know, it's so much easier for a parent to like look ahead five steps and see why what this toddler wants is not going to be good for them. But all they feel is I want what I want. And you're not giving it to me. And that makes me feel very limited and very frustrated and yet, it's because they just aren't even able to see how that will work together later. Because I feel like all of these principles that the Lord gives us, particularly those that are of like the higher law and these concepts, they all work together for our good. And when we can't see it, we have to trust that God sees it. Well, and I just keep thinking about how the first principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first one. And so if we can keep that perspective of, yes, God's ways are much higher than our ways, and he is really loving us and teaching us, those laws may be easier to embrace. And so I like the, I like the concept for our podcast, Michelle, that like we do a full circle every time, because I feel like there's a a scripture at the end of this reading that brings us back to the beginning where it says from the beginning in um, chapter two, verse 13, from the beginning, God chose you for salvation through being made holy by the spirit and faith in the truth. He called you through our gospel for this purpose so that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, Many are called, but few are chosen. And how are, your, how are you chosen? You, you choose. 
You choose to follow Heavenly Father. You choose to keep his laws. You choose to, to embrace what Christ wants to teach you at this time, whatever that time may be. And, and I love, and I just want to like pull this in at the end, because I feel like um, at the beginning of chapter three, I wrote the words powerful prayer as I was reading this. And I think, well, yes, it is a powerful prayer, but it's also a model for us. And I think one of our protections is to learn how much more power we have in reaching out to God in our prayers than we think we do or maybe that we fully recognize, um, because in verse three, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and keep you from evil. And one of his prayers in verse five, and the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. That as we, I have found so much comfort and stability and clarity as I have turned more and more and more to God with complete openness and vulnerableness to ask for his help and protection. And there is power in that. And that is part of what's going to pull all of these things together for us is keeping that connection between us and the Lord, that direct access that we have to him, which really is like amazingly remarkable. We have direct access to the creator of the universe, to petition for what we need and like harnessing that for our own good is going to prepare us for all of these things. It's going to prepare us to teach the gospel in a kind and loving way. It's going to prepare us for the second coming. It's going to keep us safe and help us to become a holy people. So that was just something that really stood out to me as something that has been instrumental for me in the last couple of years, particularly. And as Paul says that the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at all times. And in every way as his closing remark is my remark to that. And amen, Michelle. Yeah. And doesn't it all come back to that? The peace that, of Christ. Right. That, 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 that peace and that light of Christ, when we put ourselves in a position to recognize how dependent we are on him and how much we trust him, then that comes together. So amen. Thank you, Laura.